1: We are both familiar with the heritage. We are both unfamiliar with the products. David Balin joining us now, City Global Wealth Chief Investment Officer and Global Head of Investments. David, let's just talk about, I think, the key discussion right now, the best way, the cleanest way to get exposure, durable exposure to a better American economy.
2: Well, I, you know, first of all, I, I I want to be Tom's repairman, but other than that, I, I do want to say that this is a um, a pretty extraordinary time, and you've actually hit upon a couple of those themes. Number one is incredible revenue growth for technology companies, and the benefit, of course, you know, uh, to their stocks. But that's what's benefiting the economy: this incredible efficiency and incredible flexibility of you know uh, of companies, you know, global companies and U.S. companies. Number two is, and you use the great example of uh, you know of, of Stanley Works, the the, the idea of of what growth is to come. When we talk about an economy growing six to 8% after a pandemic, there are two aspects to it. One is the actual ability to spend, right? And that ability to spend is due to household savings. And that ability to spend is actually due to the fact that people have not had the opportunity to leave their home to do things, to begin doing work for themselves, right? And what we're seeing is a pent up demand from the consumer as well as right an enormous amount of stimulus and as well as the fact that people are going to begin to act as, as they did you know a year and a half ago all of that is happening at the same time you've asked another question i think in, in in your programs you know yesterday which is what's sustainable and that will be very interesting lisa talked about this in the in the intro just now which is you know some companies are going to be able to keep this boost of revenue like a company like ups reporting extraordinary you know uh, uh, uh your shipments and things like that. To the extent that people continue to work from home, that will continue to take place. And so this change of behavior that's definitely going to be underway for the next couple of years, that's going to be a big deal. The more people are adapting to work in the future based upon what they learned in the pandemic, the more we have this sustainable um, uh, revenue growth that you're seeing now.
0: David, the big fear out there, I want you to address this, and we see this along the way for different reasons, but now front and center is margin compression. OMG, units, price, revenue, down we go. And on the income statement, we're gonna see some forms of margin compression. I don't see it.
2: Well, I do see it. And I think you're gonna see it on a temporary basis as certain things are, are really in short supply. You know, when the economy reopens, the other thing is we're gonna have all of the inputs except for, or except for labor, all of the inputs are gonna go up a great deal in terms of their cost, right? All of the commodities, the cost of actually shipping goods and services. The fact that there is going to be, you know, a, a, a the way I put it, 16 months of inventory needs to be produced in 12 months to not only satisfy current demand, but to refill the supply pipeline. All of that's gonna take place now. And that will cause some delays and it also will cause prices to go up. I also believe, however, that this will be passed through to the consumer because the leaders are going to exactly. the margin compression. Now, that brings up the idea of inflation. People talk about it. And there will be, I think, temporary inflation for the course of the next you know 12 to 18 months. We want our clients to own tips right now. And The only thing we really love in the fixed income market other than high yield are tips because they actually will capture this type of consumer inflation. Uh, but it won't be forever. It'll just be for this particular boost of time.
3: Well, and the temporary inflation boost hinges in the idea that we're not going to get a material shift in the economy. And here you had Google yesterday announcing a $50, uh, $50 billion share buyback. Is that good or bad for you as an investor after all of these investors said that they wanted to see investment in the infrastructure of companies, the investment in actual uh, productivity going forward? Share buybacks doesn't get that done.
2: Well, they really don't have much of a choice. Um, When you're just handed, you know, literally boatloads of cash because of the fact that your investment is in human capital, if you think about it, that is, you know, they have excess cash, they're doing buybacks. Who else does it benefit? Well, it benefits all of their employees as well. They simply don't have the internal uh, research and development costs that are required necessary to sustain the growth that they have. It's not going to be building new manufacturing plants. It's just going to be hiring new human capital, and they will do that. And that's why they're going to benefit both their shareholders and their employees by doing so.
1: David, always good to catch up with you, sir. Great to catch up on this market too. David Bailey, City Global Wealth CIO and Global Head of Investments.
0: We begin with Torsten Slack, with Apollo Global Management, and their chief economist, Torsten. When you see this data in the historic moment of trade, are you elevating your GDP estimates and lengthening the boom economy?
4: Well, it is certainly very revealing for how strong the economy is. Uh, When imports uh, go up so much, it is certainly, as Lisa was saying, a very strong sign that uh, the stimulus checks have been buying a lot of consumer goods, that's been showing up in trade. We also have, generally speaking, that the economy is getting a lot of tailwind from excess savings in the corporate sector, excess savings in the household sector. And on top of that, the reopening, of course, just continues and now with the discussions, now just yesterday, of the mask mandates changing. So this economy is, uh, is doing very well, and the numbers this morning on the trade balance just uh, confirms that uh, this your picture of the ball underwater that's coming up is certainly a, a good analogy. We are seeing an economy that's coming back very strongly.
1: Let's talk about inflation, price pressure. As you pointed out, Austin, this isn't just base effects. It's too easy to sit here. It's almost lazy just to say it's the base effects. We all know the base effects. It's more than that, isn't it?
4: It is. And I think this is a very, very important discussion for today, as Mike so Mike McKee just was mentioning for the press conference and the Fed. I mean, the Fed will continue to tell the dovish story about uh, the unemployment rate is still 6%. This is just base effects. There is nothing really to worry about here in the near term. We're still waiting for the economy to come back to full capacity or the unemployment rate to come back to a lower level, uh, which could be around three and a half percent, which we were pre-pandemic. But as you're saying, John, if you look at the data for a number of different indicators, not only are inflation expectations going up for the household sector, You're also seeing that it's getting very difficult to find workers. Some companies are now paying workers just to show up for an interview. You're also seeing in a number of different indicators when it comes to the ISM, the regional Fed surveys from the Richmond Fed, from the uh, Denver, uh, I'm sorry, the Dallas Fed and the Denver area in particular, but also the Kansas City Fed, they have shown significant pressure in particular the manufacturing sector. And all this is pointing to higher input costs. And as you just spoke about copper prices, that makes it more expensive to produce. And the big question is, What happens if input costs go up? The two things can happen. Either margins can get squeezed or selling prices, meaning inflation can go up. And we are seeing more signs of this not just being base effects. There is very strong demand in the economy pushing prices higher.
1: So how is your outlook different to the Federal Reserve's right now, Torsten?
4: So I think that in the near term, and if I type ECFC go on my Bloomberg screen and I do the quarterly profile of how does the consensus expect core PCE over the next several quarters, it is quite impressive that the expectation is inflation will go up in the next quarter or two, and then it will come down and be exactly two going into the end of this year and into next year. I think the risks are beginning to rise that Larry Summers is right. Or as Olivier Blanchard has been saying, this is not just overheating. There's a risk that this is like starting a fire. So there is a chance that inflation could be overshooting 2%. And the Fed might continue to say, well, that's okay. We have flexible average inflation targeting. We are allowing inflation to overshoot. But the big, big question is if long rates are also just going to take a relatively relaxed approach to inflation overshooting 2%. So I would say, John, to your question, that the key issue here really is that if inflation does begin to overshoot 2% for an extended period, one does need to look very carefully at how long rates. Will long rates just say, okay, that's all right. We accept that. Or will long race begin to say, well, wait a minute, if I'm a bond investor and I see higher inflation, that erodes well, my returns. And therefore, I need to be compensated for that risk.
3: What does an inflation fire look like? Not just burning hot, but a fire. I mean, are we heading back to 1970s when we say that people scream, no way, we're no way heading back to that. But parse out the new inflation fire.
4: Yeah, that's a very important question, Lisa. I would say the new inflation fire is very similar to what we had in the late 60s inflation gradually went up and it stayed at a relatively elevated level. In this world we live in today, the levels of inflation, of course, are different relative to what we had in the late 60s, from 65 to 1970. But in my book, that would be inflation at or above two and a half on core PCE, which, as you know, is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. If we get to those levels, and in particular, if we get there just for several months, then I do think that bond investors will really start to become worried. That's not my baseline scenario. I still think that inflation is under control, but we do have a few months here where we could risk some turbulence in credit, in equities, in risky assets because of this issue that rates risks and inflation risks are more elevated. And then the final point on this is have a look on your Bloomberg screen on rates, vol. implied fall vol in rates is very, very elevated. So the move index, for example, is very elevated relative to say VIX which has just come down. So what is the shock that people are so worried about in rates markets that people in equity markets don't seem to care too much about? Same thing with credit ball, it's also very low. So there is a disconnect between volatility, implied vol in rates markets is very high relative to how low implied vol actually is in almost all risky assets. And I think that's telling us something about how investors are thinking about the inflation risks for the next several months.
1: Torsten, really, really, really smart. Torsten Slok, there, Apollo Global Management, <coughs> Chief Economist.
0: Right now on Washington, Isaac Boltansky with us with Compass Point with a very sharp note. And he really, I love the phrase, Isaac, from rhetoric to reality. The idea that we're loaded with rhetoric tonight. When does the reality click in?
5: 11 p.m. tonight or do we have to wait 11 weeks? I would argue it's already starting to click in, and, and at least that's my takeaway from, from investor calls. You know, what we're going to get tonight, Tom, is an incredibly ambitious and expansive proposal that would, you know, intended to remake our economy in a way that we haven't seen since the since great society under LBJ. But the reality is it's not going to happen. And one of my favorite lines and the one that I think we should keep in mind as we listen to the president speak is the president proposes, but Congress disposes. And really, the question for investors remains, what will Congress agree to? And the subtext there is what will the centrist Democrats in the Senate allow? Okay, but I want to go out to your climb of Ohio
0: Wesleyan University. I mean, they've got to sell this thing out where maybe the election is actually pretty close as well. How do the moderate Democrats around the acreage of Ohio Wesleyan adapt to their president and to their liberal
5: wing? I think that the main point there is that, and this is, I think, an important timing point to highlight, is that infrastructure week is going to last another five months or so, Tom. It's going to be iterative. It's going to be time consuming. It will include myriad bruising fights over really detailed and nuanced policy issues from like-kind exchanges all the way to up basis. It's going to take another, I think, five months, most likely until September or October to get something done. But my view is that there is a window of both political and legislative opportunity that Democrats will seize on and that we will get something. We're not going to get what the president calls for tonight, but we will get something of significance.
3: Isaac, given your experience in Washington, D.C., what is likely between the $2.3 trillion infrastructure spending, the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan? What's realistic?
5: Look, I think that right now we should um, focus on physical infrastructure. I think that that clearly has a considerable amount of support on Capitol Hill. Uh, I think there's actually bipartisan negotiation now, even though I wouldn't bet on that. I still think that we have to go through reconciliation. So I think we should focus on physical infrastructure. And then on the tax side, here's my framework. Anything that's seen as narrowing the gap between wealth and work, has a likelihood of being included in the final package because it dovetails with the democratic economic fairness agenda. So here I'm talking about the higher tax bracket, I'm talking about the increase in capital gains, and I'm talking about the end of stepped-up basis.
1: Well, let's put some numbers on that. Equalising the treatment of earnings and capital gains. The band is quite wide, the spread is quite wide right now. Isaac, how narrow do you expect the spread to get? What kind of numbers are you thinking about?
5: Yeah, look, I think that anything that we hear tonight should always be viewed as a negotiating um, marker, not a red line. And I think the White House has been clear about that. So we will not see a capital gains rate of of 43 percent. I think that ultimately that will be negotiated down um, to something closer to the 28 to 30% range. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. We have the centrist Democrats, um, but also I think there's an awareness that we want to incentivize long term investment. Furthermore, there's an equilibrium where if you raise it too high, no one wants to sell. And so I really think it's fair to assume 28 to 30% on that end, again, for the highest earner.
1: Well, let me just add an additional question in then, Isaac, because what they're trying to achieve is to close that carried interest loophole as well. And from what I can tell, and you tell me if your interpretation is different, that they're trying to do that by equalizing the treatment of capital gains and wages and the end outcome would be closing that loophole. Now, if they can't equalize that, can they just close the loophole by doing something else? And do you think they should do that?
5: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head and it's highlighted in the fact sheet here, their focus is really on capital income broadly. And so capital gains and dividends, by the way, were included. And, and if we just talked about increasing that threshold and ending stepped-up basis, he really handled the carried interest uh, issue in its own right. Now, I'm telling you, I don't think that they get all the way to treating as ordinary income. So there will be a focus on a more narrow fixed to carried interest as well. I think this time Democrats are finally prepared to close that, especially with the overarching changes to the rate for capital gains. And again, I can't underscore how important it is. The end of stepped up basis.
1: Isaac, great to catch up. Good to hear from you. Isaac boltansky taking the realist approach to the situation down in Washington, well- D.C. Will Power
0: joins now from Baird. Really been looking forward to this with this outperform on Apple. Will, I want to note the privatization of Apple. Since 2012, they've eliminated a very large percentage of their shares. They're down to 17 kajillion right now. Share buybacks are part of the fabric there. Do you just assume that
6: continues in this boom economy? Well, Tom, uh, great to be here. Thanks again uh, for having me. I, I think the answer, the short answer, is yes. I think it has become a key uh, piece of the fabric of the company. And, and the reality is it's become a good way to try to help reward shareholders with the prodigious cash, really, that they've continued to produce. And this is a company that we forecast to produce free cash flow approaching you know, $80 billion. And despite spending a lot on R&D and other growth uh, initiatives, they've continued to produce excess cash. And I think, as you know, they've had a policy to try to to turn that net cash position uh, to neutral or or effectively zero. And and that suggests we're going to continue to see, you know, aggressive buybacks. They've approached, you know, $30 billion a quarter. We expect that to continue going forward. Are
0: they going to announce a dividend increase today? I've seen that out in the zeitgeist. And if they do that, do they reaffirm their position by making it a near double-digit dividend increase?
6: That's a good question. It's not going to surprise me if we see a digit a, a dividend increase, whether it's double digit or not. I don't know, but my suspicion is we'll see uh, an additional, you know, kind of doubling down, if you will, on commitment both buyback and dividend increase. And I think it's likely we'll get that as part of the earnings release. There's been no official announcement with that respect.
3: Will, what did you make of the announcement yesterday or earlier this week from Apple that they were going to invest 430? Billion dollars, I can't even say it. It's that much in U.S. infrastructure.
6: Well, look, it's a commitment uh, to the United States and an investment generally, right? Because they're certainly making investments outside of the United, uh, you know, states as well. I'm sure there's a political, you know, angle to that as well. I think they like to emphasize the fact that they are a significant, you know, taxpayer already, given all the tax uh, that they're taking uh, on on the regulatory front. Uh, but I think it also just speaks to the confidence they they have in the business going forward, right? And the investments they want to make uh, to ensure they have the production capabilities, the skill sets, uh, and the R and D investment they they need to continue to to remain in a leadership position.
3: Well, and Tom accused me perhaps of being a little bit cynical yesterday because my immediate uh, reaction was this is entirely a PR move ahead of different antitrust regulations potentially coming down the pike as well as higher taxes. And yet how much does this sort of underscore the supply chain pressures that we expect to hear about in today's earnings release?
6: Well, I think that's certainly an element of it too, right? And Apple's a company that's been a master of supply chain over the years, and has continued to look for ways to diversify um, supply chain. and And I think you're right. I think there is an element of PR. We've we've seen similar announcements to the magnitude of 350 billion dollars and the like over the past, you know, couple of years with respect to commitment. Uh, So I think it continues down that path, you know, they've been on uh, in terms of laying out a longer um, term vision. And again, I think. Also, as I said, you know, I think speaks to the confidence of the business and the opportunity, opportunities that you know, they still see ahead.
0: Will Parr, the last time around, the joy was a rebuild in Asia, not just China, but Asia in general. Do
6: you look for a further recovery of their Asian growth? Well, I think they've continued to see success across the globe. I mean, I I mean, you look at the, uh, you know, the terrible situation in India and Brazil and some of these other geographies. You know, it's unclear to what degree they get impacted, you know, short term, um, you know, from COVID. So that's still a wild card geography, uh, you know, by uh, geography. But as best we can tell, demand remains robust across product lines and across uh, geographies. You know, we're again expecting 20% you know, 20% plus growth across you know, really all the product lines as we move into this quarter. And, and I think st- solid growth across okay. geos as well.
0: I got to make some news here, Will Power. Your target's a 155, but what's your sum of the parts valuation? When you break this down and you value services and all the rest of it and all the
6: products and that, what's your sum of the parts statistic? Yeah, well, well, Tom, that's a good question. You know, look, I mean, I think uh, one of the things to call out here is if you look at wearables and services on a combined basis, that's almost a hundred billion dollar you know business. How right? much so, is that
0: per share? If wearables and and the, the stuff Lisa buys. How much is that per share?
6: Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'd have to go back and do that math and come back to. You, oh, I guess, come on, 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 you know it, on, a, on, on a per <laughs> share basis, but. I can tell you on a revenue basis, it's almost a third of the business and on a combined basis, growing north of 20%, right? And that's what's helping
3: drive
0: this mix shift.
3: Yeah, all I can say He talks like
6: an economist. We're not going
0: to get a straight answer out of willpower.
3: (laughs) Tom, all I can say is that my tech cash is probably uh, less robust than vet bills. There is a question if you want to talk like an economist, Will. When you zoom out, a lot of people say, especially with tech stock valuations, they've gotten somewhat divorced from fundamentals. Yes, fundamentals look amazing. And yet the valuation is hinged very much on yields remaining this low, on inflation remaining low. What's your view on that? How vulnerable are uh, Mm. apples? shares to the idea of yields moving materially higher?
6: I think less vulnerable than some of my hyper growth names. So, you know, as an example, I cover many of the high growth software SaaS names and names like Zoom, RingCentral, Twilio, right, which were all rocket ships last year, but they've been under you know more duress due to uh, rising interest rates. And so I can't believe I think it's a much bigger focus there than it is on some of the big tech names. I think tax rate will be something to watch, certainly with Apple. And some of the other big uh, tech names, again, it kind of speaks to the fact that they, they you know, pay us a significant uh, you know, percentage of profits, uh, you know, out in taxes. So it, it's certainly something to keep an eye on as it pertains to the broader market in the tech space. But I think, you know, a bigger uh, impact on, on the true high, you know, high growth names. Apple's growing at a much faster pace right now. Uh, but I think by and large, isn't seen still as a, as a double-digit long-term grower at this point.
3: Well, when you talk about taxes, what would have a bigger impact in your view? A higher overall tax rate or closing some of the loopholes that big tech companies have enjoyed to evade or to get away from some of the high taxation rates?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. And I, yeah, I'm not sure I have the perfect answer to that. I think it's probably you know, the higher tax rate um uh overall. And again, I think as Apple points out, uh, you know, they, they believe they're the highest corporate taxpayer in America, you know, already, right? So it suggests at some level they're not using perhaps every single loophole that, that perhaps uh you know they could. But but you know yeah. they all companies are always going to want to try to maximize, right? Their, their their profits.
0: Well, Mrs. Keen emails in, and she wants to know, a hitter like you, when you go to these road shows and you do all your Apple chit, chit chat and all that, do you get like the Hermes the Hermes watch swag? Do you get like the watch bands from Hermes at four hundred
6: eighty nine dollars for the watch band? I, no, I, I'm like everybody else. I'm still paying for it. If you want to talk to you know Tim Cook about that for me, you know, that'd be great. I'd love to be able to test out some of those products. We'll do that when we uh, talk
0: to, Yeah, I mean I mean I I'm sorry Lisa that just says I mean four hundred eighty-nine dollars Lisa is a watch band that says Lisa Bramowitz.
3: Oh yeah, you know me. It's basically how much is that air tag again, John? You said it was something like four hundred dollars.
1: What happened to this conversation tracker? this morning? I mean, well run, will power, Beth Senior Research Analyst. Thank you, sir.